Let's take our Bibles and let's do our Bible study this evening. Uh, Again, I am improvising here and doing something that, uh, in fact, I had done for the website, the Facebook uh, devotional this past week, and uh, and worked with it last week and recorded it, and so here we are this evening putting it up. And let me start off with just adding to what I had shared on that Facebook idea is, have you ever had a really dumb argument with somebody? get upset over something really silly or something that, quite frankly, after a while, you don't even remember what you were arguing about? Has that ever happened to anybody? No. Not you. Not, okay. We're the only ones in this room. Okay. So there was this article that asked couples, what were the silly things that they or even in people in general, what they got into arguments over? And some, some people responded, whether they be married couples or family members, here are some of the silly things people got upset about. We almost divorced over the paint color of our dining room. Somebody else said, my college roommate and I didn't speak to three, for three weeks to each other because we got an argument over the toilet paper roll, how it was supposed to be placed. It started off as a discussion, then an argument, then to the point where we called each other names, got into a physical fight, and it stopped when I broke his wrist over toilet paper. This one, we argued over whether or not candy corn was a vegetable. He still insists that it is. Okay, here's one. We were arguing over getting out of, which one of us was get out of bed to turn off the light. We were both so angry and stubborn, we slept all night with the light on. When I was pregnant, I cried because he made me tater tots for dinner, and I didn't like them. We fought about it for two days. He got me tulips, this one he says, one year for Easter. They were fake. He said he didn't know they were fake. I said it's ridiculous that he didn't even know they were fake. And he deliberately bought me unreal flowers. We stayed mad for several days, and I still get upset when I think about it. Here's one. My girlfriend was mad at me for several days because she said I was mean to her in her dream. My wife and I argued for hours over whether a, what, when AM was and when PM was. Not some philosophical or semantic debate. I mean, she argued AM was how we labeled the afternoon hours. That's what it stood for. She still insists that's the case. My wife and I had a very hot argument over which would weigh more, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers. Which one is it? We went back and forth forever while I tried to explain to her there is no difference. It did not help when her mother chimed in and said, well, what about if it's a pound of wet feathers? A coworker and I had a big debate that led to things being said that ruined our friendship. It all started over who painted the Mona Lisa. Who did it? Leonardo. Leonardo DiCaprio was what... (laughs) When I was a kid, my friend and I stood facing each other, arguing which hand was the left hand and which one was the right hand. It took us several minutes to realize that when standing opposite of someone, your left is their right. But we insisted and argued for a while. I witnessed a friend berate her boyfriend because he wished on a shooting star before her, and he stole her wish. The same couple had a huge blow uh, when it came to him taking a sip of her juice. And then he goes on and tells, do people get... In arguments over silly things? Yeah, good thing Christians never do. Christians never have conflicts, never have problems. Or do they? Do Christians ever argue? 
Sure, okay. Let's take just Jesus and the disciples. The 12 that he was training. What did they get? Did they ever have conflicts between them? Yeah, like what? Over what? Who's the greatest among them? Anything else? That, that's basically the general, but any other occasions that you remember? What's that? Who, brought the, who didn't bring the bread on the boat? Okay. There's, there, there's several times that they have difficulties and they have challenges. And these are the guys living closest to Jesus that we would say, oh, they should have got along. They argued about the who is the greatest. They argued over who gets the best seats. I mean, it's the same thing, but it was who gets the seat. They argued over who was, you know, they weren't going to wash one another's feet because they were arguing over who was the greatest when that happened. Um, and then even in the time when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, betray me what did they say about each other? Well, Peter says it. He says, maybe they will, but never I. You know, I can see them betraying you. And so again, they had some times where they argued. In fact, they even picked on somebody who was casting out demons. Remember? And they told him, you can't cast out demons because you're not one of the twelve. You're not with us, so you can't do it. And so Jesus repeatedly had to challenge them and rebuke them. And he talked to them multiple times about this idea of getting together and loving one another. If you were to do the study on the Last Supper, which is John chapter 13 all the way through 17, is his discourse during that Last Supper, what did Jesus tell the disciples that they need to do? To not argue, but rather a new commandment. What is it? Love one another even as... Okay, that he is love. So he even got down on his knees to demonstrate how they're to get along and serve one another. And he does what to them? He washes their feet. That he says this several times. If you go through that sermon in that evening, he made comments several times about loving one another, loving one another. And um, he even concluded that discussion on loving one another by saying, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one towards another. Stop the arguments, get along with each other, and this will enhance your testimony. And then when he prays the Lord's Prayer, when he prays the Lord's Prayer in John 17, he even prays, Father, help them to be united even as you and I are united. And not only for these 12, but I also pray that the same thing would happen for the future disciples, right, for those who will come into the flock. So this idea of that unity, that idea of loving one another, it's just, it's impacted throughout the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so when the early church started, they got along famously. Yes, no? Did they have conflicts in the book of Acts within the believers? Like over what? What did they, now, now think of the book of Acts and the epistles. What did people argue about? What's that? Whether they would eat meat offered to idols. If you eat meat offered to an idol, you're not godly, Ron. Okay? And because I don't, I'm spiritual and you're not. But they made the arguments. What else? Okay, they argued over the rights of should we all practice the rituals, uh, Jewish rituals of the feast days, the circumcision, the different things like that. What else did they argue about? Okay, the same, the food aspects, anything else that they, you remember? Okay, the distribution of the widows. In Acts chapter 6, there were some that were upset because, do you remember the setting? Yeah, you were favoring a certain group of widows and you're not, not taking care of the Gentile or Grecian widows like you are the Jewish widows. In fact, some of the arguments even went further than that. There was times that they argued over who was the most or best preacher in the church. Do you remember they had their favorites? 
I am of Pastor Wayne. I am of Pastor Kim. I am of Pastor Art. You don't read that in Scripture. Okay. But you read that. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Silas. And so they had all these different things that happened. As we went through, you can see, oh, and they had arguments over meals. That some of them didn't, when, the, when poor people came, some of the rich said, I'm not going to feed, give my food to the poor. And if, if they want to eat this meal, they should bring their own. They, they should, you know, they're poor for a reason. And so they had these arguments. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even sit at the same table as somebody of a different nationality. And so it happened that there was, um, there was, there was, dis- there was some debates within the church. In fact, he has to write in the pastoral epistles. He says that if you're going to start, you know, finding fault with the preachers, which you can do very quickly, but if you're going to find fault and accuse them openly, you have to now, Paul lays it out, you have to have two or three witnesses and you can't be making false accusations that really because it's divisive and he warns in Romans chapter 16 he warns that if you're going to continue to cause division within the church you should be rebuked and if you're not and if you don't respond properly there should be some form of discipline for somebody who's divisive the point is that in the New Testament church there was a problem there was a problem. There was even leaders who put down other people in the church. I'm a, I'm a leader. Diotrephes was his name. I'm a leader. You, you folk, you don't have my training. You don't have my understanding of, of scriptures. Therefore, you are just inferior to me. And he created a conflict with the church with that type of an attitude. Which, by the way, does that ever happen today? Good thing preachers never put people down. Okay. And so there is this constant, this constant conflict that was going on. And so Jesus is, um, is, deba- is warning about, I find this a very interesting passage. When Paul is writing the Thessalonians, he is being accused, if you remember the text, he is being accused, Paul, if you really loved us, you would have come and visited us sooner. You didn't come to visit me as quickly as what you said you were going to. And Paul has to write the Thessalonians and he says, it's not that I don't love you. And now because of that, you're turning away from the gospel and you're turning others away from the gospel because you're doubting my sincerity. By the way, does this ever happen today? That people get upset that they didn't get the attention and they turn away from worship. Do you think that ever happens? Well, it did in that time. And Paul has to write them, and he's saying to the Thessalonians, he says, don't shift in doctrine, don't be upset, I do care. In fact, we, we were taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in our heart. I still loved you. I endeavored the more abundantly to see you. I wanted to get there. Do you remember where he says, why he says he couldn't get there? This is, this is really impacting to see where do these conflicts come from. Do you remember the next verse? Satan did what? Okay, Satan hindered us, he says, wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, I would have come time and again, but Satan, and anybody remember what the word hindered mean? It means what they do to the roads in Pennsylvania. Okay, what do they do when they're working on them? They dig them up. It was like two Wednesdays ago. We didn't get notification, but they needed to run the water lines across where they're building across the street. So they dug out the entire the road and blocked us off so we couldn't get into the building uh, from that angle. And that was the morning we were doing Bible studies, and all of a sudden, what happened? There was this big ditch there that they're laying lines. That's what this word means. Satan puts a big ditch, creates conflicts, and isn't it clever that Satan attacks by, by providing uh, certain circumstances that fellowship isn't 
to somebody's expectation. And as a result, they walk away from the truth. And Paul is writing them and saying, listen, you got to be careful. Satan is an instigator of conflict. And so you and I need to be very, very cautious. And we need to remember that God is saying, okay, let's, let's avoid this. You need to have fellowship. You need to have, be, in, be in line with one another. But do churches, despite the fact that we claim to be following the Bible, do churches still have conflicts? Does it ever happen that churches split over petty things? Do you think churches ever split over petty things? Is, is that a possibility? Okay, so here is from a book by Thomas Rainier, who is a church growth guy, and he had did his, done a survey asking a number of church leaders, what kind of things caused your church to split? Well, we had a church business meeting. The argument was over, it lasted for over two hours over the length of the pastor's beard. Here's one. We fought over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. We had a dispute in our church whether to install restroom stall dividers in the woman's restroom. We had a church argument and split the church over whether or not the clock in the worship center should be removed. Now, I understand that one. Okay. No, I don't. I really don't. 45-minute heated business meeting over the type of filing cabinet we were going to purchase as a church, a black one or a brown one. A fight over the picture of Jesus that was to be put in the foyer. A, 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 a petition that led to a church split over all the church staff being clean-shaven. Here's one. We, disp- we, <laughs> we had a dispute over whether or not the worship leader should be required to keep his shoes on during the service or not. <laughs> a big church over- argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave the dime so we could close the meeting and move on. Here's one. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to finally resolve the comment. The fight was really wacky. Um, uh, argument over whether the green beans, should, what type of green beans should be served at church potlucks. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee used in the church. In one of the church, they moved from, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand, and in another church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example because they didn't like the new coffee. Major conflict when the youth, uh, youth group borrowed a crock pot that had been used for years but was in the kitchen and they took it without permission. An argument over who has the authority to buy the postage stamp for the church. An argument that split our church over whether we should use the term potluck instead of pot blessing for the meals. An argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. An argument over whether or not we should have gluten-free communion or not. A dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday periodically. An argument over whether or not to allow fake plants in the auditorium. We are guilty as charged on a lot of those things. Is this what Jesus intended us to do? No, no. In fact, Jesus intended us to be a church, a group of believers that we are working forward to a greater goal than whether we call it potluck or pot blessing and moving on and addressing the bigger issues. And so you and I know that there's the problem here. 
Okay, our sinful tendencies could lead us into getting into a church split, could get us into a tendency of arguing. What do we do to avoid that? What do we do as a church body to follow the commands of Christ, loving one another? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What do we work on? Well, one area that we can work on very, in a very practical, pragmatic way is biblical fellowship. That is taking time for one another talking with one, or one another, spending time with mother, one another, beyond just a worship service, getting in fellowship with one another. And so what happens is Jesus is going to speak about that very possibility in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, the setting of the sermon is Jesus is ministering. Jesus has been preaching. In fact, if we were to go through and lay it out, in, the, in this entire chapter, what's happening is Jesus has been preaching for a period of time. He is in the latter half of his ministry, in the latter uh, portion, third of his ministry at the time, Luke 14. If you recall from the study on the life of Christ, who did Jesus focus on in the last third of his earthly ministry? He targeted ministering to one group in particular. Do you remember who it was? The disciples, thank you. He focused on training the disciples because they're going to have to take over very shortly. So in this period of time that he is focusing and traveling in the northern region and taking time away from the crowds, there are times when he gets together with crowds. This is one of those times. One of the times that he is focusing on disciples, he is invited to come to a home of a Pharisee. Now, the opposition by this time is really heated. The opposition of the Pharisees is they have determined he's going to die. They have already accused him at this time that he is in league with Baal's above or Satan. And so this is the time, and Jesus is focusing on the twelve, but he's invited to go to a, a home of a Pharisee, and he takes them up on the offer. He goes to their home. And when he goes to the home, if you read in the first, looking at the first few verses, he comes into the home, and as you look at the first few verses, as Jesus comes into this meal, how are the Pharisees responding to Jesus? Did you see it in those first few verses? Look at it, Luke 14. They're, they're doing something towards Jesus. They're watching him. Have you ever been in a meal that people are watching you? They're observing you? Okay, in the illustration I used when I did this for, uh, for Facebook is the time, one of the times when we went to China. We went into a city that was in the northern part of China, more remote, and it was on the border of China and North Korea. And they had not seen many, many um, folk that were Western and so this was a more remote type place. But they did have a KFC. So we went in there for our supper. And when we came in, I am not kidding you, everybody stopped eating. And everybody stared and stared. We got our order. We sat down. And by the time we were eating and all, at least half the restaurant never ate while we were there. They just stared at us. The other half, they were, they were chewing while they were <laughs> watching us. How do you think that would make you feel? Awkward? Comfortable? I want to come here again. This is a great place. Makes you feel really, really special. <laughs> that is not the word I was going to use. <laughs> 
I'll tell you special. We went to Romania, and uh, two of us preached a church service in Romania, and then the people in this village church invited us to one of the homes afterwards for soup and bread late at night after the three-hour service. And we were sitting there, and they said, we've made a special meal for you. And several families joined this host family. And these people didn't have much. I mean, seriously, they didn't have much, and you could tell that it was more of an impoverished community, uh, but they made us a special meal. And there was only one table that was only a small table with four chairs. So the pastor and the three of us who were visiting, we sat at the table. Everybody else, they stood. The whole time we're eating, there's this whole group of people. I felt very special then too. Okay. So Jesus is at this meal and while he, the people are watching, and why do you think they're watching Jesus? See if he messes up. Okay. And he does. If you read the next few verses, how does he mess up? A, a man with dropsy comes in. The swelling, the, the kidney or liver or heart issues that's causing a lot of swelling. This man is very sick. He's going to fall into congestive heart failure shortly. What does Jesus do to this man? He heals him. What's the problem? It's the Sabbath day. And so Jesus has blown it big time. He's done medical work on the Sabbath day, violated Jewish law. And so they're very upset. And Jesus responds to them and he says, if you, if you remember how Jesus responds, he says, which of you, if you have your, your ass, your donkey, or your oxen and falls in a pit, which one of you won't go and rescue that animal even on the Sabbath day? And why would they do that? Why would they go out and get the animal out of the ditch? It, this is their livelihood. They needed this. This is essential. That animal otherwise could die, hurt itself, do something. And so they rescue it because this is how you're going to live. This is how you provide. And which one of you won't do that? And the answer is, they would all do it. And his point is, if you would rescue an animal, what's wrong with me rescuing somebody on the Sabbath day? And so then what happens is Jesus begins to discuss. They, they don't answer verse 6. Why do you think they don't answer him? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? And so then it says he puts forth a parable of those who were bidden when he marked how they had chose out. And he speaks about the common practice that when you Pharisees do a meal and people come to your place, what do people typically do? Okay, you have this table arrangement. Let's say it's a U-shaped table. Where do most of the guests, the Pharisees' guests, where do they go for? The head of the table. Okay, they go to, which would be, in, in their culture, wherever the host is, it would be, to my, the right hand, the seat next to the host would be the most important guest, the second most would be here, the third most would be one over, the fourth most would be, and then down the line until who's sitting at the far end of the table? It's not the kid's table. Okay, who's sitting at the far end? The least important. And so this was a social, and Jesus is saying, I saw when you people came in, where did most of you head for? The head of the table. And he says, wouldn't it be better if you came and sat at the head of the table and the host of the house said, uh, get up and move down there. That would be very embarrassing, as opposed to if you sat at the far end, he says, come and sit here. And he, he lays something out that's very important as far as not being proud, not being you know, arrogant, which we're going to mention in just a few moments. 
But then when he's all done with that, look what he expands his comments in verse 12. He also, to them in verse 12, then said he also to him that bade him, and now he's opening it up to this man as well as the others. When you make a dinner or a supper, call not your friends nor your brother, neither your kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they bid you also, and a recompense be made to you. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you shall be blessed, as he goes on, for they cannot recompense you or repay you, for you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Very interesting what he makes comment. And we understand he's making a comment to the to the religious leader. But by virtue of application, can we take some truth out of this and make some real clear applications of what Jesus is teaching and getting at when it comes to this idea of fellowship and how we could take this and learn? Jesus is basically saying, instead of being concerned about yourself, be concerned about others. And so the way that he talks about it is one of the ways of showing concern for others is having fellowship with them. And he lays some very practical applications of how you and I can improve on fellowship with one another. If we can put it this way, there's just several facts about fellowship. Number one, Jesus encouraged all of us to fellowship with others. He doesn't say, if you make a feast, if you make a supper or dinner, what does he say? When? Which means what? Okay, he's assuming you're going to do it. And the you is abroad. It's, it's not a Though he's talking to that man, is, I understand the, the original language, it's a broader. He's talking to this one, but it's a broader you. And so what happens, he says, when you make a dinner, and he's talking in particular hospitality, getting together people for fellowship, and quite frankly, meals is a wonderful way of fellowshipping with people. Food, for some reason, just kind of breaks down barriers. It puts up other barriers, but it breaks down the social barriers. Okay, and so what he's doing is he's not commanding it. He's assuming this is what we're going to do. Which, in my mind, what is stronger? An order, a command, or an assumption? Isn't the assumption stronger? He's just assuming you're going you're to entertain people. You're going to have people in, or you're going to go out with people. You're going to do fellowship with them. And he says, this is going to be to all of you, because as I mentioned, it's an expanded you. And so he's talking, he's saying, even though you've done this in the past, do it in the future. Even though you're doing it right now, keep on doing it. Remember, he's talking to somebody who has people in their home, and he's saying, I want you to continue this. This is an appropriate thing to do. Even if you're a leader, you know, you're in a position. In fact, in the scriptures... Who of us in this room, one of their requirements is hospitality. Who does that apply to? In particular, in particular. What did you say, Lou? The pastor. The pastor is supposed to be setting the example of hospitality. And so I I can't say, well, I'm busy. I already fellowship with you from the pulpit. I've had enough of you. Okay. Can't do that. Can't do that according to the scriptures. And by the way, does fellowshipping, does, does taking time to have people in, does it require personal effort? Yes or no? Oh yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy because you don't know likes or dislikes. What do you have to, what, what other effort does it take if you're going to invite people in? You have to what? <laughs> Nobody in their right mind likes coconut cream pie. That's not even a question, brother. 
if you're saved, you don't eat that. Okay. <laughs> Did you say clean up? Who said that? Patsy or Ron? Which one of you said? Okay. Your house is always perfect. Oh, you're on this, this totem pole that just came down in my, the image I had of you. Does, does, it's true of all of us, it would require straightening up the house? Yes, no? Oh, some of you are sitting there, not me, not me, my house is always good. Okay, the, the point is, he's saying do something that might require effort. Now, when you go through scriptures, it's not just hospitality, but look at all these action statements about fellowship. Greet one another, receive one another, entertain strangers, be given to hospitality, esteem others. I, I miss the one that shows up frequently that we don't dare do in COVID. Greet one another with... Yeah, we don't do that in COVID, okay. But, but it requires effort to really greet people. Yes, no? Do, do, is it easy for you to walk up to total strangers? Or does it require effort? Well, he's talking about all these things, and, and particularly, he makes a comment about providing a dinner or a supper in this fellowship. So let me, let me make that one comment. He assumes he wants us to be doing this. Number two, he wants us to consider how we might improve on the way it's commonly done. He says, when you do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't do this, but do this. He is challenging this man to not continue the way he's been doing it in the past, to improve upon it, to make some changes, in the, particularly who he calls to the supper. And so this is a very interesting context because in this context, it's a Pharisee, and Pharisees have a tendency, and people who are Pharisee-like, they have a tendency to follow after What? They, they set these things up. They set up the traditions, and then what happens? They just become the norm. And they do this time and time again. They set up a rule. They set up a rule that says, okay, we don't have fellowship with ladies. And then what happens? In all of their meal times, what did they always exclude? Because somebody set up that rule. You always exclude ladies. And so they become, they become you know, this stuck-in-the-mud tradition that just becomes a normal, and we would never do that. We would never practice a certain type of, you name it, and it becomes our regimen all the time. See, we, we like change. We find different pews to sit in. We find different parking spots to park in. We find that we want to have different types of meal whenever we go to our favorite restaurant. We never order the same thing twice. Or do we get stuck in a rut? Do we all of a sudden sometimes, are we Pharisaic-like that we almost at this point think that this is the way it is. This is the rule. This is the regimen. And what happens is, you know, we become Pharisaic like, well, I'm good enough. I don't need to make any changes. You know, what I've done and where I've, you know, and, and I fellowship with people and I talk to people at church. It's only about 10, but us 10 are pretty satisfying. And I don't need to expand my horizons at all. And in fact, the other, the other you know, 400 and some, they really aren't as good as us 10. 
You know, the, the idea that people sit at times and listen to sermons, does this ever happen that somebody says, good, preach it, Wayne. So-and-so really needs this. They really, you let them have it. Tell them that they should be more friendly to me. But what's the issue? The me is the one that should take the application and say, how do I change? And so I think what happens in this text is very challenging when it comes to personally spending time with others and fellowship that for you and me, the big challenge is do better. Do more. Instead of just doing what you've been doing, improve upon it. Instead of just talking to the same old, and don't get me wrong, that, you know, not ignore, but instead of the same few, expand your fellowship. And that's what he's encouraging in this passage. He is saying, hey, listen, you know, change. But the Pharisaic-like, Pharisee-like person, they, they don't listen to the words of Christ. They're very content with where they're at. And they, they don't think they need to make any improvement. They don't think that they need to be more hospitable than what they've done because we're good enough. That is a Pharisaic-like attitude. And so what he does is he challenges us to say, you know, ask how you can improve fellowshipping with other believers. There's a third thought that stands out to me. It's this. We are not to limit our fellowship to those people we already know or are comfortable with. In fact, Jesus gets very pointed in this passage. Jesus makes these comments when he says, when you make a dinner or a supper, instead of calling your friends, your brethren, your relatives, your rich neighbors, when you make a feast, verse 13, who is he encouraging you to call? What's it say? The what? The poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. May I ask you something? What did most of the people in society do with the poor, the lame, the maimed, the blind? Those people were shoved in a corner. And by the way, having a blind person over to your house, would that be difficult? Not your house, but a house in general. Let's say we're living in Bible days. Would it be hard to get a lame person to most people's homes? A blind person to most people's homes, yes? Would that be challenging? That you aren't used to helping to deal with a blind person. You might have to help them. What's that? You might have to help them to eat. You, what did you say? Where to get around the house. If there's, if where you're doing, are you doing the meal on the roof? Yeah. And they didn't have OSHA stuff back then. Or building codes. You know, that, that, that it could be challenging. And what he's doing is he's saying, go out of your way. Put extra effort into fellowshipping with people, even if it requires doing something that is really hard to do with people who, quite frankly, let's, let's be honest about it. It is very comfortable to keep on getting together with family. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying that we shouldn't fellowship with family. But he is saying, don't fellowship only with family. And he's basically telling us, what I want you to do is I want you, you know, here's where the Pharisees were. They're in the previous verse. They only invited their kinsmen, their friends, their rich neighbors. And why would they limit it to those people? Well, they would limit their fellowship to people who are like them. They would limit their fellowship to people they're comfortable with. 
They would limit their fellowship to people of their class. Because remember, these meals were being seen by everyone. And so they wanted to hold their social status. And they didn't want people to say, hey, he fellowships with publicans and sinners. And so they were very careful. They would look for people that would benefit them, build their ego. And so the very, the very bottom, he, they wanted to fellowship with people who would invite them back. That would benefit them. And, they, they would, and so he's saying, no, you, you and me. Now in our application as believers, if we, exp- if we work down the ladder, what we want to do is he's saying, reach out to the people that nobody else reaches out to. Go, go out of your way to reach out to people who aren't like you. Go out of your way in the sense of interacting with some people who they can't repay you. You're not having fellowship with them because it's going to benefit you. You're actually having fellowship to be a blessing to them. To help them. What did we sing this evening? Make me a... And so here he's demanding that what we would do is something that's hard. It's difficult. But he's saying this is, this is really important. How does that look in modern, in modern 2022? Well, it might be that you go out of way to talk to somebody that you normally don't talk to at church. It might be that during church fellowships, we're having one in a couple Sundays. We're having a luncheon, okay, on the 13th. So when we have that, it might be you don't sit with the same group. Not that you don't like those people, but you sit with some others, get to know somebody else. It, it might be that what, what happens is you, you initiate conversations. Every one of us sitting here says, yeah, I wish people would do that. I wish people would come and talk to me. What does Jesus say? He says, do unto others as you would what? Have them do unto you. So initiate the conversations. Seek out people that you don't know very well. We could keep on going with this. Is this, this would really be revolutionary. Change where you sit to meet other people. It, it, it could be being friendly, meeting people who, who typically they haven't reciprocated. They aren't really outwardly friendly like you are. Okay? But you go out of your way, you talk with them. You meet somebody outside your age group. Or outside of your element. The, the idea that you, you know, when you're in a conversation, we ignore the cell phone and listen. Does that ever bother anybody? When you're in a conversation and, you know. What, what does that tell you? You're not important. Okay. And so that idea of have, have people. Here's one for you. Have people to your home. Have people over to your home and invite, or, or if that doesn't work, invite them to go out to a meal and, um, and spend time. So it's the practical application. Let me take number four, okay, as time is. You do this without expectation for an invitation or men's applause. You're not doing this to say, yeah, yeah, look at me, look at me, which the Pharisees did. You're not doing this to say, well, if I invited them, they owe me one. I took them out for steak at Burger King, Okay, it was ground up, but it was so they owe me a Longhorns. Okay, no, no, you don't even have an expectation. But does this ever happen in church? Does this ever happen? 
we, we, I, I have talked to people that have left our church in years gone by. They have left our church because they invited a couple families over, but they never got invited back within several months. So that meant, I'm out of here. Well, if you're doing it for repay, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Okay? And so the idea here is, he even says, do it in a way that you don't make others feel ob- obligated to you. But go out of your way, keep on doing it no matter what happens. And we all know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees did it because they wanted all this benefits and we could talk about that. But the bottom line is, the Pharisees in fellowship were very self-centered. Even the fellowship that they did, it was all about them. They wanted others to see them. They wanted others to notice them. That's why they would pick the chief seats. Can I, can I make a practical application of that? Okay, with this in mind. Okay, when you have fellowship, you know, that what you want to do is you don't want to make it about yourself. I'll address that a little bit more in just a second. Why do some peepers of, of people avoid interacting? I think one of the reasons that we struggle with it you might struggle with it, is because sometimes my pride gets in the way. My pride in this way, those people aren't my type. My pride says to me at times, you know, their kids don't live up to my standards. I don't know if I want to take the risk of an unruly child in my house because all of our possessions are so precious. Yeah, right. They're, they're not precious at all. But we can... Yeah. When I say something foolish, do you, ever, do you ever not say anything because you don't want to be embarrassing to somebody or yourself? So sometimes we just don't say anything. We don't talk. Or sometimes we're so shy. So? Well, that's, that's who I am. So? The Word of God calls us to get out of that. The Word of God challenges us that says, hey, listen, that we need to be friendly. Or you say, oh, I have my own little group and we're perfectly all right. We don't need others because, you know, quite frankly, I'm too busy. I, I, my schedule. It's all about my schedule and my time. And the bottom line is, we, listen, if we're going to promote unity, one of the ways we do is spend time with one another. Go out of our way. And when we spend time, do it to minister to others. To go, I used this illustration in that devotional that I gave that there was a lady by the name of Mame, an older woman in one of those little rural communities that she was in her upper 80s and yet she would walk to the post office regularly. She, they had, she had a mailbox at her house. She could even, they even made arrangements that if she put a little note, she could get, have them lay, put the stamps there. But she would go to the post office. And when she would go, even if there's a lot of people there, she wouldn't use the machines or anything like that. And one of the individuals asked, why is it you come here every day? And why is it that you will even stand here in line for a long time and you don't need to? And she made this comment. She said, because the machine won't ask me about my arthritis. What was she wanting? She wanted interaction. That's what some of these people need. That's what some of us need is interaction beyond just, okay, sitting in here and amening together and singing together, which are all good and nothing wrong with it. But we need human contact with other believers. 
to figure out, hey, how are you doing this with raising kids? How's this working in your, in, at work? How does this uh, work? What do you do in your Bible study? And it's not just a quick passing, shaking the hands and walking out the door. Jesus is promoting spending time. And when you spend time, don't focus on yourself. Like the Pharisees. Where the Pharisees is they, they want others to notice them. They take the chief seats. How do we do that today? How do we do that when we get together with people? How do we, how do we, we, we don't have chief seats. Maybe you do at your house. We don't. Okay. We, we just, you sit where you sit. Okay, and when that happens, but how do some people monopolize the fellowship? Have you ever run into people? They're always talking, like me, right now. Stop amening on that one. <laughs> Have you ever had that conversation where somebody monopolizes it or... If you say, hey, I was going to work this morning and I pulled out in front of somebody, it was my fault pulling out, but they didn't have their lights on and I pulled out like I shared in Sunday school and I almost got hit this morning. And you tell that story and then what do they have to do? They have to one-up me. Theirs was a semi that ran over them, but they survived. Okay. And no matter where the conversation goes, it always comes back to them. Now, since I said that in recording that a week ago and challenging, I've been monitoring myself. And guess what Humble Wayne has found out? Me, who I thought I had this under control. Guess what? I have noticed that many times in the conversation, I do that. I do that not intending, but it's just... And you're all going, yeah, you do it. That's, (laughs) but it's worth stopping and saying, wait a minute. When I when I'm with people, I want to make them. What do you want to fill in the blank? Special, special. So I stand there and look at them. Like he says, that makes you feel special. Okay, okay. There's there's. um, Let me see. This is a relationship seminar, and when they were talking, you were talking about, hey, when you give your testimony, can I? Okay, you said to make yourself calm down. Somebody told you just picture everybody in their underwear when you're giving testimony. And I said, that's really gross. Okay. <laughs> so this seminar said, hey, if you really want to work on deal, deal, dealing with people, okay, here's what you should picture. That they're wearing, more than just undies, they're wearing a sign. And the sign reads this. Please make me feel important. And so when I would look at you, Mike, I would think, how do I make Mike feel important? What's, my, what's my, my sinful nature tendency? Who do I want to be important in our conversation? Me. I want you to remember my name. I want you to remember things that I can say. That sounds so good. But in this whole seminar, it was all about making, in our case, Mike feel important. How do you do that with somebody else? I'm, I'm seriously, how, how would you do that? Ask him questions and then listen. What did you say? Same thing? Okay. Okay. And it's focusing on them. So let me add, add to that, okay, as we just move on and wrap up here. Jesus promises to reward those who promote this type of fellowship. And so if you look at the text, 
Jesus makes this comment in verse 14. You shall be blessed for they cannot recompense you. For you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Interesting phrase. Talking to people in the context of fellowshipping with people. That he makes this idea that he says you're going to be blessed. How is it we're blessed in this life by fellowshipping with people who might be poor and lamed? How, how might that happen? Anybody have an idea? Can, can I give you an illustration? In my mind, and you've done this, in my mind, I'm going to go and visit somebody, I'm going to go visit a widow, or somebody who's sick, and they're going through a severe trial. And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to be a blessing to them. I'm going with the intention to encourage them. What? often happens. You get the encouragement. You, in spending time with them, you go, whoa, I needed that. I think that's what he's talking about. Is that idea, when we go out to minister to other people, it ricochets back and we get the blessing. But he does say as well that what's going to happen beyond that is there's going to be a reward at the resurrection. I don't know what else it can be. I have no other idea that these are the, some of the crowns, some of the rewards that he gives. That he's saying that what I'm going to do is I'm going to reward you, which means Jesus is watching in this area of hospitality, in this area of fellowship. Jesus is expecting me to work at it, to improve at it. And it's very important to Jesus, otherwise he wouldn't reward for it. So it's really important, more important than what we think. Something that we really need to work on because he's offering rewards for it. And he's noticing even what we do in private. When nobody else sees, which the Pharisees, they had always had to be in public. But he looks, he watches, and he remembers, and he's going to reward you for it. It's an amazing text. It's an amazing instance. This is a ministry every one of us can do. Not every one of us can preach. Not every one of us can sing. Some of us shouldn't be singing in public. Not every one of us can give. Not every one of us has some of those, those different gifts. But this is one we can all do. We can all take time for other people more than what we've done. We could all entertain. We could all practice hospitality. We could all...